Good evening. Don't know why I say that, because it never gets met with a response, but anyhow, <laughs> good evening. <laughs> Tonight I'd like to talk about compassion and the place for that in our practice, in our hearts, how it manifests. Many of you, you know, uh, in this terrain where we're in touching difficult, challenging, painful parts of ourselves or our relationships. And so it's really uh, essential on the path in our lives that we learn how to uh, cultivate and nurture this really beautiful, essential quality that the heart, as, as the heart turns towards ourselves or others with pain, with difficulty, there's a tenderness, there's an openness. <clears throat> just as it happened today when a gentleman fell over and passed out for a little while and, and I heard from many people the, the care and the concern, that the natural compassion of uh, what's wrong, can I help? There's a tenderness, there's a movement to, to help. So I'd like to read this story uh, about compassion that I found on Facebook which is not generally the, the vessel for wisdom in my experience. <laughs> but you never know where the truth comes out of you. I arrive at the address, this is from a taxi driver. I arrive at the address and honk the horn. After waiting a few minutes, I honk again. Since this was going to be my last ride of the shift, I thought about just driving away. But instead I put the car in park and walked up to the door and, honked, and knocked. Just a minute, answered a frail elderly voice. I could hear something being dragged across the floor. After a long pause, the door opened. A small woman in her 90s stood before me. She was wearing a print dress and a pillbox hat with a veil pinned on it. By her side was a small nylon suitcase. The apartment looked as if no one had lived in it for years. All the furniture was covered with sheets. Would you carry my bag out to the car, she said. I took the suitcase in the cab and then returned to assist the woman. She took my arm and we walked slowly towards the curb. She kept thanking me for my kindness. Oh, it's nothing, I say. I just try to treat my passengers the way I want my mother to be treated. When we get to the cab, she gave me an address and then asked, could you drive through downtown? And I said, well, it's not the shortest way. But then she said, oh, I don't mind. I'm in no hurry. I'm on my way to hospice. I looked in the rear view mirror. Her eyes were glistening. I don't have any family left, she continued in a soft voice. The doctors say I don't have very long. I quietly reached over and shut off the meter. What route would you like me to take? For the next few hours, we drove through the city. She showed me the building where she'd once worked as an elevator operator. She had me pull up in front of a furniture warehouse that had once been a ballroom where she had been dancing as a girl. Sometimes she'd ask me to slow in front of a particular building or corner and would sit staring into the darkness, saying nothing. As the first hint of sun was creasing the horizon, she suddenly said, I'm tired, let's go now. We drove in silence to the address she'd given me. It was a low building, small convalescent home. Two orderlies came out to the cab as soon as we pulled up. I opened the trunk and took the small suitcase to the door. The woman was already sitting in her wheelchair. How much do I owe you, she said. Oh, nothing. Well, you have to make a living, she answered. There are other passengers, I responded. Almost without thinking, I bent and gave her a hug. She held on to me tightly. 
She gave an old, you gave an old woman a little moment of joy, she said. Thank you. I squeezed her hand and then walked into the dim morning light. Behind me, a door shut. It was the sound of closing of a life. I didn't pick up any more passengers that shift. I drove aimlessly lost in thought for the rest of the day. I could hardly talk. What if that woman had got an angry driver or one who was impatient? What if I'd refused to take the ride or had honked once and driven away? On a quick review, I don't think that I've done anything more important in my life. So I, what I love about that story is the simplicity, is the simple meeting of an experience, meeting this person exactly where she was, with a, with a tender heart, with a generosity of heart. Right? There's a certain generosity that rises out of this practice. And what happened was profound for her and for him. So I think of these teachings, you know, there's the, the, the Dharma teachings, Buddhist teachings are vast and sometimes complex and deep and philosophical and all of that. But in their essence, they're all oriented towards compassion in that they're all oriented towards confronting suffering and relieving our suffering in different ways. I think of the Buddha as he, after his awakening, he looked around and he saw that people were in great... Uh, um, great degrees of suffering, just like today, and he saw how people were also creating their own misery to a large degree. And so that was the orientation of his teaching was to relieve the suffering. It came from a profound compassion. And there's different stories in, in the text of the Buddha, you know, helping people and really uh, going out of his way for years and years, um, tending to his, his students, his monks and nuns and in very beautiful, simple ways. This is from Dan Goldman, who's done a lot of research, uh, compiling a lot of research around uh, attention, awareness, emotional intelligence, and compassion. He says, the act of compassion begins with full attention, just as rapport does. You have to really see the person. If you see the person, then naturally empathy arises. If you tune into the other person, you feel with them. If empathy arises and if that person is in dire need, then empathic concern can come. You want to help them, and that begins a compassionate act. And I'd say that compassion begins with attention. And again, we come back to this principle that these practices of awareness, mindfulness, metta, compassion, they're really different facets of the same heart, the same innate jewel within us. I was teaching a course here a couple of weeks ago and it was an example of, of how this happens. So this woman is sweeping in the, um, in the kitchen and as part of a yogi job and she's, getting, and she's noticing she's getting really tense and uptight even though it's not such a big deal to sweep the floor. And then she has this memory of when she was about five years old and her mother had gave birth to twins and so she suddenly, as the eldest child, had to take on all the responsibility of, of helping her mother and cleaning and cooking and, and all of that. And so she felt like in that moment her childhood evaporated and she took on this role of the helper. But it had such a lot of pain and resentment because so much had to be suppressed. And so what happened is as she was sweeping, she noticed these memories, she noticed the feelings, she noticed the pain, noticed... The, 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 the history of suffering and then just this tenderness came out towards that experience and a lot of 
amazing shift unravel for her just by meeting that experience with a kind heart. <clears throat> so in the teachings, as most of you know, the Buddha framed his understanding of the human condition in the context of the Four Noble Truths. The first truth that there is suffering, that there is unsatisfactoriness, that there is pain in this life, that's inevitable, it's unavoidable, the suffering. Anybody not had that experience? Anybody managed to get through? No, it's part of the human condition. And he said there's also some profound causes to that in our nature, that the, the movement to resist, to struggle with the way things are. So we, we attach, we hold on, we resist, we push, we hate, we, we avoid. We're in contention with what is. And he said there's also peace that's possible when we learn to be at ease and can accept profoundly what is. We're no longer wanting or resisting the truth of ourselves, the life experience. And there's a path as we're walking on this retreat to the end, uh, <coughs> to the end of that suffering. He talked about things like old age, sickness, death, sorrow, lamentation, being suffering. He talked about not getting what we want is suffering. Anybody get what they want? Sometimes, well, sometimes we get what we want. And then he said the second part of suffering is getting what we don't want. Right? Getting what we getting so not getting what you want. Did, did you ask for your body? Did you did you fill in a catalog before you came into this life? Maybe you did. I don't know. Oh, I want this body, tall, long, short. Not getting getting what you don't want. Right? How many things do you have that you don't want? What about your crazy mind? You know? Or your family? <laughs> I'm going to choose that one. Oh no, I get this one instead. Okay, great. May you be happy. <laughs> May we all be happy. May we love our beloved families. Losing what we have is suffering, right? How many things have you lost in this life? People, friends, community, health, youth. Ah, youth, yes, we all lose that too. Being separated from that which you love, right? What are you separated from that which we love? I think the most profound meaning of this is we're separated from our true nature. We separated from that which is really essential to our heart and our being. Great suffering. There's a line that I, I reflect on a lot as I go about my day, and the line is, I'm not sure who it's from, but it doesn't matter. It says, be kind to every person you meet because each person has been asked to carry a great burden. Be kind to each person you meet because everybody has been asked to carry a great burden. Is there anybody here that hasn't, that's got through life without a burden? I don't think so. Yeah. So to remember that as we're going about our day, if somebody you know, pushes in line or takes our zafu or, or is breathing too loudly or is snoring in our room, or just remember, oh, this person too, just like me, the, the, the compassion practice, oh, this person's just like me. Not the same as me, but has the same vulnerability, fragility, losses, ups and downs of life. Oh, can I, can I see that this person is also tender and suffering? So the, the good news of the, of, of the Buddha's scope of understanding is that there is relief from suffering. There is freedom from suffering. That's possible to each of us in any moment, actually, in, particularly in the way that we meet our experience. 
you can look and we get this wonderful opportunity in, the, in this week to do nothing but to simply pay attention to cultivate this practice of kindness, but also to see how we meet each moment, each knee pain, each sadness, each difficulty, each painful memory with how we meet that. Do we meet that with a receptive, kind attitude? Or are we hostile? Or are we judging? Or are we afraid and we contract? Or do we resist? The poet Cahill Gibran said, your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. Your pain is the breaking of the shell that encloses your understanding. And so often it's through the doorway of pain, of difficulty, of strife, of struggle, of loss, that we have, that forces us to grow. It forces us to open our hearts. It forces us to find some way to be with that experience. So, we, so what we're bringing, the two wings of the bird is often referred to, we, when we bring those wings, those, those orientations to the moment, we bring, what do we bring? We bring wisdom, the wisdom that arises out of our mindfulness practice, and we bring compassion or a kind attention. So there's a story that I came across somewhere about a, a, a competition to find the, the most caring child. It seems like a silly competition. I was just reading some research about, uh, from Harvard about one of the primary instincts of human beings is to care. And it's a survival instinct. And, uh, and some of the, in the writing of Darwin, um, the survival of the fittest actually wasn't his phrase but he often referred to the survival of the kindest, that it was the kindest, the caring, most collaborative, compassionate uh, aspects in our nature allowed us to survive. So anyhow, the story goes, uh, this, the child who wins this, the, the, the competition uh, is a four-year-old boy, and the story is he's uh, living with his mom, and the next-door neighbors is an elderly couple, and the the elderly man has just lost his wife of a lifelong marriage, and so he's very bereft. And one day the, the mother and the child are walking uh, down the street, and they go past this, this man's house, and he's sitting on the porch on his rocking chair. And the little boy shakes free of his mother's hand and runs up the garden path and crawls onto the, the old man's lap. And he sits there for a while, and uh, the mother just waits at the end of the path, and then the little boy gets off the lap, comes back down. And the mom said, so what did you say? What what happened? And the little boy said, oh, nothing, I just helped him cry. I just helped him cry. That's simple. You know, we know that in our being. It's, It's innate within us, and of course we forget. That's why we practice. So it's all in our attitude to how we meet ourselves, how we meet each other, how we meet difficulty, how we meet distress. And of course we always, you know, life will present challenges where it's it's difficult to meet ourselves or an experience with an open, kind heart. And that's why we practice, that's why we have to stretch, we have to keep opening and opening and opening. I remember last year I went through this very interesting period in my life where I... um, I, uh, I, take, I took three months off to do some writing. It was a writing sabbatical. And I went into this cabin in the middle of nowhere. 
took me like two planes, two buses, a taxi, a shuttle, a ferry, and I didn't know what I was thinking. But anyhow, I thought writers need solitude and, and all of that, and I got to the cabin, and uh, for whatever reason, it, was, it reminded me of some trauma that I hadn't accessed, and uh, uh, it's just this really intense experience uh, of anxiety came up, and it was quite intolerable. Uh, and I had to bring, I had to use everything I knew in my, you know, decades of practice. And, um, uh, and I realized that being in the cabin in that level of isolation with that level of anxiety was just not a great, great place to be. So I came home. And, uh, and that anxiety persisted in different ways, in different levels for several months. And uh, I haven't really had a, an episode like that of anxiety. And so it was, uh, first, first it was, I was afraid of it. And I was, you know, bewildered by why, what was going on and not understanding, confused and reactive and frustrated. I want to write, but I'm anxious. I can't write because I'm really just hard to be with myself. And over time, you know, I got on with my life and, and, and went about my days and had to find a way to uh, just hold that experience, hold myself, hold the body with a loving presence. That, that's all I could do. I, couldn't, I could do all my little techniques to help ground and center and resource and all those things that we know. But the anxiety persisted. And so all that was left was, this loving, was, was, was to bring this loving presence to it, which allowed some softening of the body. And the anxiety, you know, as it does, has its waves. And then eventually kind of uh, made its way out of my nervous system. Um, so we never know, you know. And I sometimes tell that story because sometimes we have this idea, this, this idea of the spiritual path. It's like this, you know, this, this, this road, right? It's nice, clear, or you're going up the hill to the mountaintop, you know, and you're maybe, maybe you're halfway there, right? It's, like, it's more like snakes and ladders, you know. <laughs> you, you go up a few snake ladders and then you think you're doing really great. You can see the mountaintop, whoa, back to number two. <laughs> and it really is like that. Up and down, and so and when you're at the bottom of that long snake, right? You come back to the beginning. How do you meet that? Right? Sometimes it feels like your practice has abandoned you, and there's not you've got nothing left to to hold onto except awareness, and maybe except a, a slight tingling warmth, right? So if if practice hasn't humbled you, just wait. <laughs> <laughs> If life hasn't humbled you, just wait. You know, it's what matures us, right? It's how we grow. We might, you know, I look back on some of the most difficult times in my life, and some of them were in these dark nights of the soul, you know, except they weren't nights, right? Someone, whoever had the dark night would have had a quick process, right? Because it's a lot longer than that. <laughs> One of mine was about a year. You know, it was intense. And... And I, but I wouldn't exchange it for a second because it's what blew my heart open. It's what, what allowed me to really turn to myself with incredible humility and tenderness. And out of that came the tenderness to other people, the tenderness to, to move in the world with love. And that became the orientation of my life after that was, oh, it's not a, I was I was on this, I'm digressing, but who cares. Um, <laughs> I was on this, you know, like I was, I was, uh, I was uh, you know, practicing a lot, a lot of intensive retreats. I was following teachers around the world and that was my life. I was going to get enlightened and, and transcend and it would all be over and I'd be at peace and then retire or something. You know. 
and, or be this great teacher, who knows what, but you know, some, some, some inflated story. And uh, you know, I was in the middle of this long, intensive retreat, and this, this, this uh, deep early trauma came up that I had no recollection of, of ever experiencing before, and it just completely shattered mm, that spiritual ego for, for sure, and also just shattered any sort of sense of uh, who I took myself to be. And it was incredibly humbling and incredibly hard. But what happened, with what I noticed, the two things that remained after doing so much practice and being flattened by pain was awareness and compassion. And I wasn't trying to be aware, I wasn't trying to be compassionate, I didn't have any facility to do that, but that's what remained, right? So then that's why we practice. We practice so when things get tough, there is something to draw on, right? These are, someone was asking me about refuge and about not having a refuge. What are our refuges? Refuge, the true refuge is awareness and love. What other refuges are there in this life? I don't know. Everything else is transient. So compassion, the place that we most need compassion is with ourselves. Kristen Neff, a psychologist and researcher, has done wonderful research in the last 10, 20 years on on the role of self-compassion. And um, she talks about it, uh, defines it in three ways. She says, um, it's being kind and understanding to oneself in instances of suffering or perceived inadequacy versus judging ourselves. Recognizing that pain and failure are unavoidable aspects of the shared human experiences, so that our pain is universal, and the ability to face rather than avoid painful thoughts and feelings. As Ajahn Chah puts it very succinctly, to run away from suffering, we run towards our suffering. So these practices make us very courageous. They allow us to turn towards, and I'll talk more about this turn, which I think is really key, So we all have innumerable sources of challenge and difficulty in our body, in our mind, in our hearts, in our lives, in our circumstances, in the global situation, whether it's global warming or the economy or job loss or insecurity. And so all of these things, it, it, it life behooves demands that we meet it with care, that we meet it with kindness, that we need a loving heart to deal with it. And we also need a little lightness you know, as I said, you know, if, we, if you don't laugh, it just isn't funny. So I think humor is, is also a beautiful balance. And, and, and I think uh, as we practice, it's good to not take ourselves too seriously. I mean, how can you look at your mind and really take yourself seriously, right? It's wacky. Yeah, it's out of control. So this is a story uh, that I heard from Spring that uh, speaks to this way of meeting ourselves with a little bit of kindness, but also some humor. So a man observes a woman in the grocery store with a three-year-old girl in a basket. As they passed the cookie section, the little girl asked for cookie, and the mother said, told her, no. The little girl, of course, immediately begins to whine and fuss, and the mother says quietly, now, now, Monica, we just have half the hours left to go through. Don't be upset, it won't be long. Soon they come to the candy aisle, and the little girl begins to shout for candy. And when finding out that there's no candy, she begins to cry. There, there, Monica, the mother says, only two more aisles to go, and then we'll be checking out. When they get to the checkout stand, the little girl immediately began to clamor for gum and burst into a terrible tantrum upon discovering there'd be no gum purchased. The mother patiently patiently says, Monica, we'll be through the checkout stand in five minutes and then you can come in and have a nice nap. Go home and have a nice nap. The man followed them out out of the store and, and stopped the woman to compliment her. 
I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Monica, he began. Whereupon the mother says, What do you mean? My little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Monica. So maybe you can recognize yourselves in that. Rumi says, keep your eye on the bandage places because that is where the light enters you. Keep your eyes on the bandage places places because that is where the light enters. So a poem for you. Um, about this shift, this shift in turning towards. You know, we so often turn away and our culture invites us, encourages us, begs us to turn away with all our distraction, toys and devices, right? There's so innumerable ways we don't have to be with ourselves. And what's so challenging about being on a silent retreat is there's no hiding. You know, and, and, and at some point you just have to surrender and be with what is. Otherwise it's intolerable. Otherwise a restlessness and the aversion is too painful. So this is a poem I wrote about uh, this process of, of leaning in. Your only duty is not to run, even if the hole of loss burns deep in your belly, and on waking you feel the dread of walking into the day stripped bare. You can always pretend, try putting on a face other than your own. But that's a game that's never worked and only burns a deeper hole inside the pocket of longing and makes the shell you've chosen to live in even more hollow. But there are times when there is no choice but to turn towards where you are, to touch the empty places inside you've spent a lifetime running from, touching with delicate hands of love the way the evening fog envelops the solitary tree without flinching, pressing into and loving every gnarled crevice, every twisted branch, even the forgotten needles fall into the ground. This is the first step that begins the slow journey of completeness, keeps inviting you deeper into the roots of yourself, claiming your place that has been waiting, that is always right here. So that invitation is always right here. The question is, will we take it? Will we turn? Will we open? And the poet Hafiz puts it this way. He says, in, in each moment, uh, we, uh, no, I didn't say that. He says, um, uh, I don't know what he says. What is he saying? <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember. Um, you have all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Do not mix them. Do not mix them. Right? And you can see on retreat, you see how you, cre- you can create a nightmare by sitting in you know, a beautiful spirit rock. And, and, and you feel completely miserable by, because someone didn't hold the door open for you and you suddenly you feel like nobody loves you. That's, that's mixing some ingredients that are completely miserable. And he says, you're all, you have all the ingredients within you to turn uh, your, uh, your life into a, into a swing for God. You, turn all your, you have all the ingredients within you to turn your existence into joy. Mix them and mix them. So a little bit of kindness, a little bit of metta, a little bit of presence, a little bit of patience. Great ingredients. Mix them, mix them. That's what retreat is. So to, to reflect to, for a moment, to notice, well, where are the places that I can't open to? Where are the places 
I can't meet, where other places are too much. We all have those places that we go like, oh no, not that, not despair. No, please, I had that last week. Oh, not existential angst, not loneliness, (laughs) not envy. You know, and we all have all of these at times, right? I remember I, when I first started practicing, I was, I, whenever I dropped below the surface layer of you know, whatever was going on, I felt sad. And, when, and, I, and I kept checking in and I noticed I was always sad. And it lasted for about 10 years. And at some point I realized, oh, it's lasting because I'm not actually really turning towards it. I'm not really letting it in. And at some point when I started to just allow it and feel it and let it move through, at some point it moved through. And it was no longer kind of the baseline of my experience. This is from Darlene Cohen, who uh, is a Zen teacher and had uh, many, many years of struggle with uh, chronic pain and debilitating uh, physical conditions. She says, people sometimes ask me where my own healing energy comes from. How in the midst of this pain, this implacable, slow crippling, can I encourage myself and other people? My answer is that my healing comes from my despair and terror and from the shadow. I dip down into that muck again and again and and I'm flooded with its healing energy. Despite the renewal and vitality it gives me to face my deepest fears, however, I don't go willingly when they call. I've been around that wheel a million times. First I feel despair, then I deny it for a few days. Sound familiar? Then its tug becomes more insistent in proportion to my resistance. Finally, it overwhelms me and pulls me down, kicking and screaming all the way. It's clear I'm caught, so at last I give up to this reunion with the dark aspect of my adjustment to pain and loss. Immediately, the release begins. First peace, and then the flood of vitality and healing energy. I can never just give up to it when I first feel it stir. You'd think after a million times with a, with a happy ending, I could give up right away and just say, Take me, I'm yours! But I never can. I always resist. I guess that's why it's called despair. (laughs) If you went willingly, it would be called something like joy or purification or renewal or something hopeful. It's staring defeat and annihilation in the face that's so terrifying. I must must resist until it overwhelms me. But I've come to trust it deeply. It's enriched my life, informed my work, and taught me not to fear the dark. So I think that's a beautiful description of someone's really rich, you can see she's really grappling right, with, with the despair. Right? And however much we know with the, the instinct, right, the, the survival instinct, the fear instinct is like, no, not again, I don't want to be with that. And, that, and then that resistance be, becomes, as the Buddha said, that's the second hour, that becomes, that becomes the suffering more than the despair. We open to the despair and, huh. I'm working with a client who has the same thing. He has these contractions in his body and Every time he surrenders, the energy moves and it liberates and he goes actually into bliss. And there's a good incentive. It doesn't always end in bliss, but it ends maybe in peace or in, in, in not an absence of struggle. And then what happens, what's, what, one of the things that arises out of that, so she talks about, um, uh, leaves her uh, not fearing the dark. What it leaves us with is a sense of courage. It leaves us with, with strength. It leaves us with confidence. And the more times we visit and encounter these dark, difficult places and we meet them with loving presence, what happens is we develop capacity. We develop these muscles of, 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 of courage. And I notice that when I work with people, whether it's students or clients or patients, that there's a sense of 
courageousness because I feel like I've gone so many different dark places in myself that I'm not afraid of anything in myself. And it brings a certain fearlessness when I work with people. And, and I know many of you know that ex- experience. So these practices, they train us. They train us for meeting difficulty. There's a, a piece from um, Suzuki Roshi who speaks to this. Suzuki Roshi is a wonderful Zen teacher. He said, you don't really know what it means to sit in meditation until there's some great difficulty in your life. Not until something happens like the grave illness of someone you love. And then you're tearing your hair out and pacing back and forth in the corridor of the hospital and there's nothing you can do. And finally you take a seat in the midst of your fears and your sorrows and thoughts and worries and you just sit in the middle of it all. And that's the moment you begin to understand the power of your practice. So I was teaching this course a couple of weeks ago uh, here for Passing the Retreat. And we had a teacher trainee uh, with us, Alexis from the East Coast. And he had to leave early. And the next morning, before the retreat ended, he sent me an email. And it went like this. On the way back from the Baltimore airport, a deer stepped in front of the car I was driving. For the next 30 minutes, I kneeled quietly in the night, lit meadow, as she struggled to stand over and over, collapsing each time. I found myself whispering, Oh, dear friend, I am so sorry. Take all the time you need. I had met her in my heart for the deer. I had met her in my heart for myself. When the time came, I kneeled by her and placed my hand on her wounded body as she slowly parted. Tears fell. Tears of openness, of allowing, of sorrow, of sacredness. What I really wanted to say to you, this is, him, this is, a, this is an email he sent to the yogis, what I really wanted to say to you when I left is, life is precious. You know that already. Keep practicing. It opens the heart. So another poem for you and the poet Rashani speaks to this, um, this amazing strength we can access as we keep doing this, this inner work. She writes, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief which leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. There is a hollow space too vast for words through which we pass with each loss, out of whose darkness we are sanctioned into being. There is a cry deeper than all sound, whose serrated edges cut the heart as we break open to the place inside which is unbreakable and whole. So sometimes it feels like our hearts are breaking but our hearts actually don't break. They may get subdued, they may get stressed, they may get uh, all kinds of things happen to the heart, but it doesn't break. And as we, if we can keep drilling these qualities, we develop a certain resiliency, a certain stability, a certain resourcefulness, which is essential in our lives, particularly as we get older 
as we encounter more challenges, whether it's loss, aging, sickness, we lose our parents or our relatives or our loved ones, that's when we bring these qualities to bear. The good news, as I mentioned in that Harvard research, is this is not foreign to you. We all have this capacity. Compassion, the Buddha called it the quivering of the heart. It's the, it's the capacity, it's the movement in the heart that feels care, that feels concern, that feels a wish to help. Whether it's with the man who fell over today, or whether it's to you know, somebody who's crying, you feel that, that impulse, right? The, the empathic response. It's not foreign to us. But we can, that it grows as we, as we become more courageous in opening to the suffering of ourselves and ultimately to the suffering of the world, which we'll speak more about. So the great Dharma teacher, Gary Larson, has a cartoon and um, he's has this picture of, uh, we're in hell, right? Some of you may feel like you're in hell. No, we're not, we're in spirit rock, but anyhow. Uh, it's all in the mind, right? So hell, and Satan's sh- coming out of his fiery den, and he's shouting, Mom, no, stop that, no. And uh, the, the caption says, Despite his repeated efforts to explain things to her, Satan could never dissuade his mother from offering cookies and milk to the freshly accursed. <laughs> so she's there with a little pinny, little devil's pinny, little tail and horns, and tray of cookies and milk to the fresh recruits coming into, into, into hell. Right? That's the instinct of the heart, right? <laughs> that maternal response, the, the, the innate response in us to care, to love. We all have that. It's from Shantideva, one of the great Buddhist uh, um, bodhisattvas, you could say, is one, one of these beings who, who writes so beautifully about the path of one who, who uh, is, whose life is dedicated to the relief of suffering. He says, I should dispel the pain of others because it hurts like my own. Just like feeding myself, I hope for nothing in return. So that's, that's the movement that starts coming out of this innate, compassionate heart. And it happens in small ways and it happens in big ways. So this is from the poet Mary Oliver. She writes, On cold evenings, my grandmother with ownership of only half her mind, the other half having flown back to Bohemia, spread newspapers over the porch floor, so, she said, the garden ants could crawl beneath as under a blanket and keep warm. And what shall I ask for for myself but being so struck by the lightning of years to be like her with what is left, that loving? So that's one response. You lay newspapers over the floor so the ants don't get cold in winter. Right? We had an international teacher meeting here, which we have every, I don't know how many years, five years or so, and maybe 10 years ago, we had a big uh, meeting with a lot of um, wonderful teachers. The Dalai Lama came, um, many uh, elders, uh, some of whom are not present anymore. And uh, one of the teachers was Mahagoshananda, who's a profound was a profound uh, practitioner and, and a meta-practitioner and really someone who embodied this quality of heartfulness. And he lost all 17 members of his family in Cambodia during the Holocaust. He happened to be practicing as a monk in Thailand when that happened. And 597,000 of his 
brethren of, in the monastic brotherhood were killed. Um, and he went back to Cambodia after the uh, genocide and um, uh, began doing these, these peace walks. And there was so much trauma, so much devastation, so much loss. And he would chant this chant that the Buddha spoke to. He said, hatred never ceases with hatred, only by love alone does hatred cease. And that was one of the precious chants of the country. And it was forbidden, you know, if you were caught chanting that, you'd be killed. And so he'd walk around these villages and the rice paddies and uh, slowly would people start coming out and feeling some sense of confidence. And they would uh, flock to his goodness and kindness and he would go to the refugee camps and a tremendous suffering. And so uh, at the end of his life, when he was near the end of his life when he came here and he started losing um, some of his mental faculties um, but what remained was this loving heart. So most of the memories of people uh, of the time when he was here, he would just walk around bowing. He would bow with this radiant smile. Sometimes he'd be found wandering up the hill, not quite sure where he was going, and he'd be <laughs> bowing to the trees and bowing to the deers. and Just this incredible, beautiful you know, essence that was left after a lifetime of doing this practice. Right? That's what's possible. So a story for you. This is a, a story from um, a woman who's, uh, I believe, she's and there's a wonderful organization called HelpOthers.org that, that dedicates itself to generosity. And so she's practicing generosity. I haven't held a job since April 2011 due to multiple health issues. I currently draw disability, but I'm having trouble finding money at the end of the month. So I decided to look for a part-time job. I've been applying and interviewing since July with no prospects. This past Tuesday evening, it was freezing cold outside and going on to nine o'clock as I was waiting outside a city bus stop, nine o'clock at night. Just as the bus pulled up, a young woman walked to the bus stop. She had a t-shirt and flip-flops on. She was also wearing several hospital bracelets. I asked her her name and if she had a coat or anywhere to go. She quickly told me she had lost her apartment because she'd lost her job and then got very sick and was put in hospital. She had no family in the area and didn't even know where she was going to sleep that night. I dug in my purse and took out some bus tickets and $5 so she'd get something to eat. I then took off my jacket and tennis shoes and gave them to her. I said these are a little big, but they should keep you warm. She looked at me and said, aren't you going to be cold? I told her for me, being cold for 15 minutes until I get to my place is worth it if I know you'll be a little warmer for wherever you end up. She cried and thanked me with a hug. I just told her to pass it on. Then after I got on the bus, that's when the miracle of spreading kindness happened. I stepped up to pay the fare and the bus driver says, Ma'am, I saw what you did and your fare is on me. Even though technically, we aren't supposed to let you on the bus without shoes, he added with a wink. <laughs> I went to sit down and this lady who was dressed in a very professional business suit calls me over to her seat. She says, I want to know the name of the person who just did the most inspiring thing I have ever seen in my life. I told her my name and she's like, Well, what can I do for you to give back what I just witnessed? I jokingly said I need a paying job, that would be nice. She said I might be able to do something. The next day she calls me and says that she has a part-time admin assistant position open in a company and wants me to come in and meet with the manager today. Turns out the lady was head of HR for the company. I went in for the interview, got a call this afternoon, I start Monday morning. Thank you for all inspiring me to keep passing the kindness on. So it's really a story of compassion. The spontaneity of heart, see somebody, it needs something, and just this movement, right? Very simple, very immediate.
So, I mean, as, as beautiful as this quality is, it also behooves us to, to reflect, well, if this is such an amazing quality, why aren't I hanging out there all the time? <laughs> you know, what gets in the way? You know, what stops the heart from opening? What stops the heart from feeling empathy and kindness and tenderness, responsiveness, when someone's in distress, someone's upset, someone's contracted, when someone's angry, when somebody's... Uh, all the different ways that people cause suffering to each other. Right? We so quickly we move to judgment, we move to the negative, we move away out of contraction. It triggers something else in us that we don't like. It triggers the limitation of our heart. Right? So often we do this to suffering because it's become, we haven't been able to deal with the, 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 the pain that they're experiencing, so we move away. Or we feel pity, which is a way of sort of opening to the pain, but really staying very separate. It's, it's over there. So just to reflect on, you know, what, what are the ways that your heart closes? Sometimes we, we, we don't want to take in the pain of another because we feel like we're going to be overwhelmed. So we, stay, we prefer to stay back, we stay a little numb, we stay closed. But of course, when we're closed, it's suffering. Ramdas put it this way, he says, It's one thing to have your heart engaged, it's another to have the heart overwhelmed. Here lies our aversion to suffering. But as I said, as we become more fluid, fluent with, with our capacity, then we have more ability to meet and open to suffering. So I'm going to close with another story. Uh, it carries on from the, the lovely meditation that we did this afternoon on forgiveness. And again, it's this movement, and, as, and, and we'll talk more about this in the next day or two, as this, this, this quality of compassion is beautiful and tender and, a, and quality as it is, it's not just a feeling, it's a, it moves us to act, it moves us to respond in the world in very concrete and important ways. And so this story uh, is a good example of that. A young kid, once, 14 years old, wanted to get into a gang. The way that the, he had to prove himself to enter the gang was to shoot somebody. It was an initiation rite. He shot a kid he didn't know. He was apprehended, brought to trial, at the end of the trial, convicted. Just before he's taken away in handcuffs, the mother of the boy who was shot stands up, looks him in the eye, and says, I'm going to kill you, and then sits down. After being in prison for a year or so, the boy is visited by that same mother, and he's kind of frightened. She says, I've got to talk to you. They have a little bit of a conversation, and then she leaves him. She says, do you need anything, like cigarettes, money? She starts to visit him. She goes every months, every few months. And over the course of three or four years, she starts visiting him more regularly. When he's about to get out at the age of 17 or 18, she asks, what are you going to do? And he says, I have no idea. I've got no family, no friends, no nothing. And she says, well, I've got a friend who has a little factory. Maybe I can help you get a job. So she arranges with the same parole officer. Then she asks, where are you going to stay? And he says, I don't know where I'm going to stay. And she says, well, I have a spare room in my house. You can stay there for a while. So he comes and stays in the spare room, takes his job, and after about six months she says, I really need to talk with you. Come into the living room. Sit down, let's talk. He feels nervous. She looks at him and says, Remember that day in court when you were convicted of murdering my son for no reason at all to get into your gang? And I stood up and said, I'm going to kill you? Yes, ma'am, I'll never forget that day, he says. And she looks back and says, Well, I have. You see, I didn't want a boy who could kill in cold blood like that to continue to exist in this world. 
So I set about visiting you, bringing you presents, bringing you things, and taking care of you. And now I let you come into my house and you get you a job and a place to live because I don't have any body left anymore. My son is gone and he was the only person that I was living with. I set about changing you and you're not that same person anymore. But I don't have anybody and I want to know if you'd stay here with me. So powerful movement of compassion. Right? So it has many different flavors. It has a tenderness to meet the vulnerability and the fragility of ourselves has the power to meet the suffering of another, and also has this tremendous courage to meet the suffering in the world and to interact. So let's sit for a minute. be able to meet the suffering in our own hearts. May we be able to meet the suffering in each other and the world with compassion. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.